Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. Today, my guest is environmentalist and sustainability expert, Kai Embrum. With over 25 years leadership and consultancy experience, Kai has a track record of promoting sustainable solutions in fields such as industry, governance and civil society. Kai firmly believes that we already have the tools to obtain sustainability and prosperity, but we still need to unite networks, communities and governments. I've been following Kai for quite a while and was keen to address the concept of a sustained environment that is a benefit for communities across the world. And I was delighted to have Kai as a guest to discuss this topic. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Kai, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Fine. Um, Sitting here in London uh, between sun and rain. (laughs) We have exactly the same weather today. I sent my daughter off to play football. She's nine. And she was saying to me, I don't think we're going to have football training today because they play on grass. And um, it was actually pouring rain. And then it suddenly stopped. And now it's blue skies all the way. So, so yeah, yeah. I've always said if you need to be a meteorologist here in Ireland, you just need to know two things. Sunny spells and scattered showers. (laughs) But but for me, when I I look out and see the rain coming, it's more like a tropical rain. And it hasn't been uh, before in London. Uh, More which has been drizzling. But uh, I have memories from uh, the Amazon and, and uh, the rainforest there. And I know what about tropical forest rain is about. And and um, I could I, I could remember that uh, uh, the type of rains we had in the Amazon is coming here. Mm-hmm. Well, there and we go. That's, that's a strange, strange thing happening. It is. And I've noticed it, too. The rain seems to be very heavy. Very brief. Intensive, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I suppose what we can do is we can kick off by finding out a little bit about your podcast because I've been listening to it over the last couple of months. It's really, really good. What I find most interesting about your podcast is that it's not um, it's not patronizing in any way and you're not trying to sorry, kind of beat people on the head by making them either feel guilty or making them feel like they're not doing enough. Um, when you started off with the podcast, was it just a something that you wanted to do just to get people interested in the subject of sustainability. And I suppose while you're at it, maybe you could tell us a little bit about sustainability and why it's important for our planet. Yeah, well, uh, the reason I started Transformers uh, was um, related. It was in the time of COVID. And um, uh, I thought I had a huge global network of people and um, I couldn't travel anymore. And then why couldn't I use... um, internet to communicate with my network and i i just thought that i have so many stories to tell and uh, i have met a lot of people in different positions everything from from uh, ministers in governments to to local activists uh, and um, they have always something to tell and learn others and um, I must say, um, I'm a little bit disappointed of how my generation have handled issues uh, about um, the, the gap between generations and um, 
when we look at um, the needs of leadership in politics, for example, um, it's a lack of good leaders. And I think one of the reasons is that we haven't taken care about the young generation's interest and engagement. It's not that the young generation is not interested in politics and, and values of society. It's a huge number of, of young people, not only Greta Thunberg, but um, they haven't found the way into politics. And we need politicians that are bright and, and also trustful. And um, the gap between the generations is one of the issues that I feel disappointed that my generation didn't succeed to transform our society with the help of the young generation. And we see that today. That's one of the main problems. Not only looking at Scandinavia, it's in UK or we're looking in the US. And the political parties have a problem. And um, so... Um, uh, that's it's in my mind, and that had also been uh, thinking when I look into my program. And I've done about fifty programs today, uh, and it's um, different types of leadership. But it's everything from local community activists to ministers in in governments, and they have uh, done something. All of them. Uh, they have delivered something, and I think it's important to tell the stories for others in the young generation to learn and don't do them the same mistakes that we have done. That we have done, and um, it's not only a good example; it's also bad examples that is in my programs. And I think um, both uh, both sides of it have to be told. Do you think that children are a key component in that? I mean, should we be teaching sustainability in primary schools? Well, it should be everything from the time of, of the nursery. And uh, uh, I have a, a knowledge from the time when I first uh, come into some conclusion of what, uh, why Sweden had so many young people going uh, to understand uh, environmental issues. It was based on uh, campaigning in Keep Sweden Clean or keep Sweden tidy. And uh, that was an engagement with the nurseries uh, all over Sweden and financed by the industry and to help them to understand how we save energy in front of when they brush their teeth and they shouldn't have the running water <laughs> and, and all these type of small things. But that created a good educated generation which the, then later was recruited to uh, different types of positions in businesses and also in, in the government. So I think that uh, Keep Sweden Tidy was a good example of how the young generation can be involved in environmental issues. And you have many areas that young people can play an important role to also push the parents in different directions to be more aware about our problem of today. If my child had asked me what is sustainability, can we say it in one or two sentences? Can we explain what it is? Because you get a lot of, there's a lot of fancy talk about, you know, going green, uh, recycling, sustainability, but I would, I'm keen to know what sustainability means in, in a short definition, because maybe that would be the key to, to explaining it to younger people and saying to them, well, sustainability is this. 
because I think yeah. some people are a little bit confused about that. They get it confused with recycling, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it is a, a, a broad uh, perspective <laughs> from our in our society, and and of course, uh, we have a definition on sustainability, mostly based on on uh, Gruhalem Brundtland, the Norwegian uh, former prime minister who in her report defined what sustainable development stands for and uh, depending on who you talk to and uh, uh, when you talk about children of course there's a lot of small things um, that is around them that they do understand that how we need to be careful about all the things we are playing with or uh, how we use things in our daily life so sustainability should be defined depending on the role you have in your businesses or in your nursery or whatever you are. It could be described in a different way. But of course, for decision makers uh, who put up sustainability as their main goal, they have a clear definition of it. And, and you know, I, I think that the most um, important the uh, definition uh, is uh, uh, on the on the global level is to look into uh, <clears throat> definition around SDG. It gives a lot of practical examples. The seventeen SDG goals uh, supported by the UN. There you have definition on in in seventeen areas that uh, give a good picture of what it stands for, but. You know, it's different depending where you are in life and where you are doing your work or in school. Uh, so it's a broad perspective of, of how we take care about our planet. And then you have to break it down to your daily life and, and define it from your position where you are. It's a good it's a good answer because, um, as you, you well know, Ireland is a very rural country. We do have big towns and cities, but even the smaller towns that are, are more associated with a rural lifestyle than they are, say, with regional or a city, a cosmopolitan lifestyle. So really, you just have Dublin and Cork, who are big, would be considered big cities on a European scale. So the, the argument here in Ireland is that sustainability is already happening in the rural areas. But I think it, it's kind of happening because obviously sustainability from a rural perspective is about renewal. It's about not overcompensating and overusing land. It's not about, you know, using excess amount of fuel or an excess amount of food crops or whatever, not wasting anything really. And that's what the rural Ireland sees sustainability as. Whereas the cosmopolitan end of Ireland, the cities, they are very much, um, say, influenced differently. So you have, say, the Green Party, for example, would have a lot of seats in, in the larger cities in Ireland. And their policies would be around eliminating cars for the cities, making the areas more pedestrian, uh, more bicycle lanes, and all that kind of side of, you know, what the green agenda is. So there's sometimes a clash. And what I wanted to ask you was, is there policies that we and regulations now available that we can use to promote sustainability on a rural as well as a regional level and make it on a large scale, Kai? Uh, rural areas has a lot of common interest and and uh, mostly 
rural area are lack of sources, but they also have an advantage that people know each other in rural areas. They have le- easier to come together, uh, and that's a, a good thing to to solve problem from. Um, but um, uh, of course, uh, when you talk about uh, cities and and uh, uh, the discussion about public transportation, which is a very key issue for for cities, uh, energy efficiency, even the energy efficiency uh, related to climate change is important. And, and of course, in uh, you have buildings in rural areas also uh, that need to uh, be more efficient. But um, um, so you have different types of agendas in rural areas in in, in urban areas. But we. Uh, People need rural areas for other reasons uh, who lives in cities. Uh, and uh, rural areas need uh, the cities of, also um, to, to get quality of life. But I've seen so many rural areas that have created links between them and, and have dialogues to find solutions. Uh, and now when we have internet, uh, when we can connect people with each other, very much easier. You don't need to travel. Uh, I've seen so many examples of, of, of rural areas that work together. And, um, uh, and as I said earlier, that uh, rural areas have a, a good opportunity to uh, easy come together and and solve problem uh, and involve people in 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 a, in a good way, but um, it's sometimes also transformation of of financing. Uh, there are lack of sources, and you need to have sort of relationship to the <laughs> to the government to to have a um, an opportunity to also address your issues. So, so even if it's few people living in the rural areas, they also have to connect themselves to to the central government's um, policy and action. And um, so, but it is different types of agendas, but I, I see it's, um, it's a lot of things that can be done. I've seen a lot of innovative um, projects develop in rural areas in uh, up in the Arctic area. And uh, I must say, I'm impressed about uh, the country Norway how they have been working in rural areas and support development. And it's based on uh, people to bring people together with this in the same agenda and try to solve problems. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on you saying bringing people together is much easier in a rural area. I mean, I live in a very small housing estate that is in a very rural rural area. And Mm. I know everybody around here, you know, and that includes Mm. people who live in single story houses on their own because, you know, we have a local school here. So we know everyone from the school. Kids are kind of come together for play dates because there's not many children in the estate that I live in. So, you know, friendships are far and wide. And um, yeah, you think we've, um, what we've already got there is we've already got the roots of a really good rural network. And when it does come to situations like to do with the local area or whatever, people do come together very quickly. Whereas I'm actually from a very working class area in Dublin. I've lived there for I lived there for 25 years, you know, from birth to 25. And what I did find even then, and some ways I still see it, is that it is hard to bring local people together. Usually it takes a tragedy or something like that. But on a, if somebody comes along with an idea for, like, say, just like sustainability or the introduction of maybe a cycling lane or anything like that in the local ne- in the local regional and uh, kind of urban areas, it's difficult, isn't it? 
because I mean it's like what you said it's just that there's no network there and people come and go a lot as well I think the other thing as you may not be aware um, is that like the Green Party here had, are now in their second phase of being in government they were in government around 2006 here in Ireland and that was at the time of the you know the, the European crash so they didn't they didn't come out of that really well now they're again in the government and I think the divide here is that people not only see a rural urban divide but they look at the Green Party and they kind of see them as a middle class party where people are kind of interested in saying they don't need they don't want a car because they're able to afford to live in a very nice estate in Dublin or whatever like that and it's of course it's not always the case because I mean there are lots of people who are members of the Green Party who come from a rural area but what I'm trying to say is that that is the problem in Ireland they look at them and they go we don't like them because they're middle class and that's the kind of thing and it's been very hard I think for the Green the Green Party to shake that off and um, I think what's happening now is that Irish parties all have a sustainability slash green agenda now. So it's it's more difficult for the Green Party to kind of stand out as something different. But I mean, suppose if we're on if we're on the subject of cities, I mean, this is probably a really big question. And, I, you know, forgive me for asking it, but you can do your best on it. With regards to cities, can they become more sustainable and, and how would they reduce their carbon footprint? Because when you think of Dublin, say, for example, Kai, it's quite old. It hasn't been kind of, it didn't feel the devastations of the Second World War. So what you see in Dublin is what's been there, like, for nearly 150 years. So I'm keen to know how that can be, you know, sustainable. Yeah, well, you have a lot of opportunities in cities because of a lot of people living there. And if you see people as sources, then you understand that they can do something if they come together to work in in the sort of understanding their problem and and of course um, uh, old cities with a lot of old houses or houses with bad energy efficiency uh, and you know house standing up for many hundred years and and of course you you need uh, of course when you need uh, when you plan for for new uh, neighborhoods and you build new buildings and and you can put a, below, a lot of more policy and action into to to the new development uh, and building materials and and also look at transport uh, transport uh, solution for people who uh, and you can work from home uh, in a bigger opportunity for for these urban areas but the old structure you need there you have opportunity to uh, work on energy efficiency and and you know you need to have uh, incentives and also political tools to help uh, this de development and and of course uh, it's a costly thing but everyone have to be a part of a, uh, also finance solutions but i've seen very interesting investment in in urban areas on energy efficiency and also social issues and uh, the use of the pension funds uh, uh, have to be in place uh, of development of of financing structure for community uh, or sort of neighborhoods in cities uh, i have more than one example from sweden uh, that uh, is interesting to look at uh, how um, a municipality got a 30 years finance structure to renew the whole neighborhoods with the pension fund and and you know the pension fund needs to think about their role to transform society and um, uh, 
it's a lot of tools there if you have the leadership. But that is also one of the issues that I have been discussing in my podcast uh, about leadership, the role of leadership. And you need brave leaders to break through in, in, with another perspective of, of how you see solutions. And in some years, I was connecting uh, the tool of crowdsourcing or the public sector to, to also to understand that they need to go out of the box and think about what can we do together, we in this municipality, and, and how to, can we create finance solutions for people and not only look at the budget for the municipality. We need uh, private finance into neighborhoods. And you have all those people with money in these areas who would like to create values in the neighborhoods and in the buildings and long-term investment. So crowdsourcing, as me, as what I see, is a very interesting tool to find new innovative finance solutions uh, and also develop new type of networking in the municipalities organization. Because I see also the structure problem for municipalities and communities that the the model is not based on the problem we have today so we re, re, we need to renew the structure of how municipality is organized i have many examples also that i had one of the programs looking into the city of Växjö in sweden which is a hundred thousand not a very big city but they develop sort of the governance structure of how you take decision in the municipality and uh, build that together with the new young politician who came in uh, to the decision-making process. And um, they work together from left to right. They have different views of of the toolbox, but um, they have the common understanding on how environmental issue should be in the front and they are now on the road to be uh, climate neutral and fossil free 2030 and they started already in 1990 <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a long way back so they got a really yeah. good a really good head start do you know i was listening to you intensively there and i've written down a couple of things and i'd like to just run by them again which you maybe go into a bit more detail so you spoke about leadership i couldn't agree with you more on leadership um and especially in a local sense yeah, it's, it's a really good idea because I think the problem is we rely on big government too much, don't we? Um, you know, when it comes, especially in countries like Ireland, because we don't have a lot of political parties, so there's not much choice. Now, it's, it's beginning to change, but at the same time, there's still the old guard in terms of who, you know, so your local councillor is pub- probably going to be from your bigger party and that kind of thing. The, the, incentives, the incentives was something that really appealed to me. And when you say incentives, I presume you mean giving value for money. So like, for example, if somebody's going to have a house renovation, they need to invest in that as well, but they need to get something back. Is that the kind of yeah. idea you have? Yeah, of course. Different types of, of we, we are not in innovative enough to, to see what sort of incentive we can use for people to be uh, or to solve problems. Or to encourage them to actually spend more of their own money. And you, yeah, and and you get something back, uh, and and of course respect <laughs> for for the work 
if you say we incentivize people to have solar panels on their roofs, but they can sell excess energy back to the grid. Yeah, to the like grid, that. yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, the, yeah. the other thing I wanted to ask about was, you know, you talk about um, saying people taking, you know, making decisions on themselves in a regional level. You know, we tried that here about 40 years ago in Ireland. We had what was known as co-ops and they built their own housing estates. So actually people got together, they got a design, they got planning permission, and they actually built housing estates. And these were quite a successful thing. But what killed it, Kai, in this country was planning permission because people started to abuse it and started to use it, you know, from nefarious means. So nowadays Ireland has a very strict planning permission. Uh, so do you think when it comes to, say, creating a lifestyle that's more sustainable, should they be relooking at the way they, you know, give planning permission to rebuilds and stuff like that? Are, are you finding that in Europe that there's a bit, you know, there's blocks and and kind of roadblocks in the way of people trying to build, say, more sustainable I housing and so on? Yeah, well, I see it's very simple. I one of the you said the word leadership, and I think one of the biggest mistake uh, that has happened is the cooperative movement who hasn't developed the leadership that uh, based on the values that they are created for. And I think it was also what I said from the beginning, my generation, we uh, didn't let the young people coming in to renew the cooperative model, because that is something which bring together individual responsibility and collective thinking. So uh, I think the cooperative uh, has a big problem. And I, I'm sorry to say, but uh, they uh, they haven't uh, succeeded in their transformation from the good value-based model in the beginning to meet the future demands and also reorganize the way how you deal with their values and how you organize that with a new generation growing up. It is hard work, but you know I think we have too many leaders who get too bad, too good payment. And they forgot to, to to look at the values from the beginning. They are a sort of a block busters <laughs> in their organization. So, but I, I'm a strong believer about the cooperative model as it as a model. Uh, I think that something is the answer for many of our future problems. It it engages people. Uh, you have voluntary incentives in to it that is also give collect collective values uh, when you drive uh, when you work in the cooperative model i've seen very successful stories from from japan from in the us uh, which uh, i would like to talk more about i, I think i'm going to have some programs uh, in my podcast further on looking into the japanese model of health cooperatives uh, and also retail system that uh, also engage the consumers in a very interesting way. Uh, so it's still sort of seeds of cooperative models that uh, could inspire a new generation who bring this type of organization to be a value in our society on sustainability. It's funny you say that because I'm just looking at a report that came in on February this year saying that um, public support for wind farms in Ireland reached a record 80%. Um, now, there is a very strong lobby here in Ireland that are against the idea of wind farms on land. 
So what's happened is Ireland has, you know, recently put out um, uh, tender for um, offshore uh, wind. Because the thing is, we we had this in action. We had a um, uh, bill put forward in our parliament nearly 30 years ago, which was looking at the idea of, of you know, um, designing and building offshore farms, wind farms. Uh, it hasn't happened. It sat on its backside for 30 years and now it's only beginning to come true. And there has been critics of that because naturally if it had been put in place 30 years ago, which meant maybe 20 years, you know, 10 years later, they would have started to build them, which meant that 20 years from now and up to now, we would have been like, Norway in terms of producing massive amounts of um you know wind power because as you know you know where Ireland is isn't Kai it's in a windy part of the world you know so our, it's our natural resource yet even today we still have um a very strong lobby who is coming from rural and tourism backgrounds and saying you know you can't put these wind farms out into the sea because they'll be just they'll ruin our tourism but i think they just completely lose the plot and it's exactly what you're saying about young people Young people seeing something like that find that fascinating. That's a part of normal life for them. And I think this is, you're absolutely right in saying that we need to convince them to be more active in saying to the older people, sorry, we don't care about this. Our future is much more important. Hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, fossil fuels currently account for over 80% of the world's energy and 75% of our global greenhouse gas emission. And I think that both solar and wind are very important tools uh, for us to speed up and to scale up. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the consequences, if you don't do it, it's going to hurt the rural areas very much. And uh, so, of course, I don't say that we should have wind windmills everywhere. Uh, but you have to have some planning thinking and, and to minimize the impact in rural areas. Uh, I, uh, so it's, but that sort of process we, we are used to. We know how to let people have their say. And, uh, uh, but it's also a question how you drive this dialogue and, and how much you involve people in the long term and, and to see so they are aware about the problem because. Uh, you know, you can't be blind when you look at how much of our energy coming from fossil fuel. We need alternative solutions, and wind and solar is the one. It's two. Uh, it's uh, it's two of our most important energy sources for uh, the time to come. And you talk about incentives. There's just I was just reading an article earlier on saying that there's about twenty eight gigawatts of power projects available in Ireland. Immediately that could start. And that would account to 80 billion of capital investment. And that's entirely funded by the private sector. So, I mean, the incentives for Ireland to, say, adopt the Norwegian model, uh, which what they did with their oil, you know, and that they, the money was put back into the actual, you know, the country itself. I mean, there is the, the incentive. You're talking about incentives. That's an absolutely massive incentive for Ireland to say, we really need to do this. And it, it's like what you said there. We have to play football with these kind of co-ops and cooperatives, don't we? We have to say to them, look, there's something in it for everybody. You get to clean the planet. You get to make a few bob. And, you know, people can live a better lifestyle. But th this seems to be dragging on so much, isn't it? And it's like as if that, as I said to you before, there seems to be this strong lobby who is in insistent on holding things up as long as they can because their model suits them. 
I think we have a little bit of a problem in the energy sector because they have strong interest organization, which has uh, been there in place for many years. And and to renew that uh, model of energy sources um, is important. And also that we get some sort of independency from the energy lobby. And um, uh, that also politicians are brave enough to go out of the box and think about how do we see the long-term energy solutions and how without um, to have lobbyists from the energy sector coming in to say that our our energy source is the best in the world and, and or trying to keep us in an old model. I think we really have to uh, <clears throat> try to find politicians who are independent from the interest of energy sectors uh, actors and trying to see the 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 role of the municipality or in the nation's interest that uh, are independently uh, uh, take decision on these uh, issues and um, yeah you have a but i think still we have a lot of even if the time is short now i am very scared that uh, the uh, time there are seven years to t- 2030 that we have to uh, reduce uh, the emission is 50 percent and and you come closer and closer to this uh, 2030 and and then we have 2050 and if you don't uh, scale up uh, in time then the rules going to be harder and harder and the cost will be higher and higher because the consequences of changing weather systems and uh, the cost for adaptation are going to increase so much. And we have to have brave politicians who see these consequences and to address the issues. And uh, you need to have a perspective of leadership need to be top down and bottom up. And they need to find each other. We briefly touched on um, just the alternative sources for renewable energy. Now, we've spoken a bit about wind and sea um, and a bit on solar, but I'm just curious to know what your opinion is on nuclear power, because it still seems to be seen as this kind of, you know, unwanted stopgap or the long term ramifications of it are not good. Or if you have a situation like Fukushima, it can have a disastrous effect on, on the region. So I'm just curious what your opinion is on nuclear power as a, as a renewable energy. Do you think it's it's old or do you think it still has a, par- a part to play? Well, um, if you ask me, uh, I, I I say that nuclear power is, it, is not in my model. Uh, and I see also... Uh, the the lobbyist coming from the nuclear power interest is the old energy thinker, and even if they have new models of energy plants of uh, uh, nuclear power, smaller nuclear power station, but it's still not sustainable. It's still a cost that it will take 10, 15 years before you develop these type of power stations. And then, and and you know, it's not good use of money because the cost is going to be huge to to develop this. And then I see, let's put the money into the fusion in the uh, nuclear power, the not the fission one, uh, because uh, then it's cleaner and it's sustainable. And Japan have just make a breakthrough of 
fusion in this uh, fusion energy uh and uh, I don't know how much you are involved in in that sort of uh, new technology, but it, it's uh, this type of uh, uh, that what we talk about the nuclear power uh, today is um, the the station are it, it's uh, many of them are old and we have to see that we close them down in the time where you have transforming the energy system to more long-term sustainable development. We we can't take them out uh, immediately, even if the Germans have done so. And uh, But uh, it, the transition need to be there. But we have shorter and shorter time, so it's not so easy. But, you know, nuclear power uh, is a risk of accidents. It's a radioactive waste disposal. Uh, and... Uh, we see what's happening in in Ukraine. How how many were thinking of that we're going to have a person like Putin, uh, and uh, then uh, this type of leadership and and you see it's always a risk that you're coming into the political system with leaders that we can't trust. So I don't think this is a way forward. It's costly and it's dangerous and it's not sustainable. Even to build one now to the modern standards, you're looking at a 15 euro, you're building cost and plan. And as you said, the question is, why are you building it? Because you could have, say, a thousand windmills somewhere in a very, very short space of time. It's really about the manufacturing of the windmills rather than the building of them. Yeah, we have, we have, we have alternative to investing. And I think that's, that's give give us feedback much faster, and it's also long term. Uh, even if I don't say that wind and solar solve all our problems, but uh, the, but um, we have different types of system, particularly when we talk about urban areas and i i think um, the the nordic model of district heating uh, based on mostly renewable energy uh, and uh, as in stockholm for example or they're going to be uh, net zero uh, emission 2020 2045 i think and they have a very interesting system for urban areas of district heating and cooling uh, and, and a good example of, of, of uh, a solution. And there we come also into the discussion about uh, the CCS, how you put the carbon emission or the carbon into the uh, <coughs> sea. And uh, uh, you have, uh, and that also, of course, uh, one part of, of discussion about CCS, what they call, but I, I think that Stockholm have an, a very interesting model of bio CCS, which um, take away the effects of 180,000 cars on the street. In combination with the district heating and cooling, uh, Stockholm is a good example of how you can, from a city perspective, solve a lot of problems. But I, uh, I would like to say something also that uh, it's not only energy on this fields. When we talk about cities' role on on energy, uh, I I also uh, been involved in in a discussion how we can give power to the plants, how we can make cities greener, and maybe here we have the relationship to also the rural area because they can de- develop the plants and send it into the cities. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, more and, trees, and, you know. It, it, it's, it's a fool's gold to be cutting down trees because they reduce the temperature overall in cities. I know I've lived in a city and I, I can always tell like it was cooler under the trees than it ever was. The other thing I've seen is that the, the development of solar 
power has been just incredible. You know, when I was in my 20s, which was a long time ago, if you put solar panels on your roof, they, they might have powered a little bit, you know, of your heated up your water a little bit. And even when I was on holidays, say in Greece, we had the solar panels up there and, and they used to heat the water. And I remember, you know, you'd be staying somewhere and you wouldn't be able to wash, to have a shower after you know four o'clock because we know he's left but nowadays the development of solar panels is incredible they no longer need sunny days to work and that's because there's been this push for you know replacing and renewables i mean it's it's clearly shown that if you can encourage businesses to be more productive they will produce more productive equipment and tools oh yeah oh yeah uh, the the technology is uh, because of so much of investment going into the sector both in wind and solar there uh, it's also technology development and one of the issues that i've been looking into is also that we have the the problem of course with the uh, what you can call it the circular circular economy model or when you look at uh, uh, after 25 years the solar panels maybe need to be disabled and uh, we need to have a system that we design the product that also are renewable, uh, that we take care about the material and we reuse the material. And that is also something that this low carbon economy have to deal with, this type of uh, in solar and wind, that we have a long-term solution, how we take care about the material we use and also uh, not to take up much much new raw material for energy solutions because we we overuse today so we need to use much more uh, of the material that's already exist in our society and and use them in in materials or for building or be, when you make cars or when you develop batteries and other uh, with the lithium batteries we, we, we need a lot of cobalt and we need a lot of other type of of minerals uh, to develop uh, new technology solutions but we need very much take care about what we already have take up from the earth and to to set, put them into a system that are renewables yeah, I think that's wise words. <laughs> like, I, I agree with you 100%. It's it's amazing how much of a modern car nowadays is is un, unrecyclable, even to this day. And uh, it, it's, it's really wise words. Can I give one example of what I don't want to see in the future? And, and one of my tweets today um, was uh, regarding a, a reportage I saw in Bloomberg's Green. Uh, Bloomberg produced a lot of very good TV program and also podcasts and other, but um, this particularly related to one of the biggest companies uh, owned by the Norwegian state, Norsk Hydro. They own a big plant of um, aluminium in in um, uh, Brazil in the Amazon rainforest, and people dying. And they haven't solved the problem with environmental problem in these poor areas. And, you know, Norway was also one of the big contributors to the Amazon rainforest through another part of the government. <laughs> but, you know, it's no coordination. And, and, and how can you trust politicians if you see it was one hand due to destroy our environment and the other hand 
helping uh, to try to 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 solve uh, the Amazon rainforest. So this reportage was very interesting. And go to my Twitter and and see and see the reportage. It's twenty five minutes long, but it's also something that we have to reflect on when government are taking decision on. Uh, how to meet our demands to build our society more sustainable. You're 100% right. And I seen that tweet this morning and I said to myself, wow, of all countries, Norway. And as you say, it's there's, you know, you look deep enough, you'll see there's always somebody counting the, the dollars more than counting the cost of the, of, you know, the destruction on the planet. Mm-hmm. But you see also that that reportage also when then they go into the supply chain. Because you have to go into the whole chain of, of production. And a lot of, of the aluminium goes to electrical cars in the US and Ford building them mold. And they didn't know that the, the, the situation in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest. And now they're going to look into their supply chain uh, also to secure that their materials is coming from a sustainable source. I, I don't know if that will happen, but... Uh, they they didn't know, and you know how many. I I think we have more more than one case of this. This is a, one of the examples from the aluminium industry, and um, you know aluminium is uh, pretty much a difficult uh, industry to deal with when we come to the environmental issue and energy sources. But it's also part of 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 sort of thinking of, of development of uh, uh, material for new cars, electrical cars. As you say, there's a lot of strong lobby groups and a lot of you know corporate action there that's keeping everything at bay. Uh, just before I let you go, I have to ask you this question. I ask this of all of my guests. Um, can you ask, tell me what you are reading, listening to, or watching at the moment? Well, uh, just now I'm following a New York Times podcast, Hard Fork, which talking about uh, AI. Yeah. Brilliant one. And chat GPT and Twitter and future solutions. That's uh, what I'm listening to now. I am into to develop uh, numbers of of podcasts on food system. All right. Yeah. And uh, so I read a lot about uh, sustainability and food system. uh, And it will come six different episodes on the food system and sustainability from Transformers. Uh, this coming uh, year, and I'm just now looking into this a complex uh, area, but it's also something related to what we eat and and uh, what we can be offered in in the in our retailer shop. Uh, how we use uh, packaging uh, and also what we produce in rural areas, and how uh, the question of land use. So food system is a huge contributor to our problem of carbon emissions. About I think it's about 30% today. So that's something I'm trying to learn a little bit more about, and but it's also to understand how we can drive change. That's a brilliant podcast concept. I'm really looking forward to listening to that because I, I have a big bugbear about food wastage. You know, we see it a lot wherever we go. And for me, it's a huge contributor to carbon emissions and also it's the anti-sustainability model. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, to listening to that. Kai, how can people find you? I know you're on Twitter. Yeah, uh, it's my name, Kai Embren, on Twitter. And uh, then I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm in Facebook. 
Uh, I mean Instagram. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm mostly active in LinkedIn and in Twitter. I, I do. Um, I tweet three times a day, uh, uh, or so the three tweets a day, uh, based on what I'm reading uh, globally, uh, on trying to inspire people to be aware about what we are doing wrong and also what we're doing good. So um, yeah, I think Twitter is a good place to follow me and uh, to get insight based on my experience from my work the last 30 years. Excellent. Now, also, there's your brilliant podcast, Transformers. And uh, we. I think, can I just say the best place to find that is to go to your uh, website, which is yeah. kaiembrum.org. Is that right? Yes. That's right. Excellent. Well, what we're going to do is I'll put that in the uh, show notes for you as well to make sure that people have the direct link to that website because it's really great. I love that website. I check to it every now and again. And as I say, I found you on Twitter. So you're getting the message out there, Kai. <laughs> okay. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, it's great. really been great talking to you today and I really appreciate you taking the time to do that for me. Oh, great. It was a pleasure to be with you in your podcast, The Comfortable Spot. And thank you to everybody out there for listening today. My name is Ken Sweeney and this is The Comfortable Spot and I will talk to you again very, very soon. So take care, y'all. Bye-bye.